Welcome to Grace Harvest Church's weekly podcast. For more information about Grace Harvest Church or to find out more about something you hear during the podcast, visit us online at graceharvestchurch.org. Now listen in and allow God to speak to you through this week's message. We're going to learn about the road called the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, the road of suffering. And, you know, I've seen in my own life, and you'll notice this in movies and in books, that roads are great metaphors for so many different things in life. Roads speak of our journey, of our past, of our future. It's cool how you can stand, especially if you're in a place like eastern Washington, right? Or if you're out in Nevada or Utah or you're in the Midwest, you can stand on a road and you can look one way or the other and it seems to go on and on forever. And if you're driving this way, you can look back and it's indicative of your past and the road forward is indicative of your future. Roads capture that idea. They're, they're linear. They show us something about where we've been and where we're going. A lot of us in our own lives, we, when we think of roads and our past, our future, we think of possibilities. We think of a, a foreboding uncertainty. Just to name some of the things that we think of when we think of a road. Roads take us to our destination or they present, present dangers in front of us. Roads carry our commerce, our loved ones, and our enemies. You ever thought about that? All of us on the road, all of us are on the road toward our life purpose and destiny, and we have no idea what challenges may be on the road ahead. I think it's interesting that when you look at warfare, when you look at history, when you look at World War I and World War II, you look at current battles, one of the things that a lot of people forget and a lot of people leave out is the importance of supply lines, the importance of being able to have a road for all of your supplies, all of your weaponry to be able to move. If you can take a bridge out, you can stop the whole supply line, right? And it's that way in life as well. Roads are so very, very important. There's a reason why one of the main prayer requests we get every week on Sunday is that people ask us to pray for family members or themselves as they travel so they'll have safe travel as they go over the roads that they're on. As we draw closer to Holy Week and the remembrance of the death and resurrection of Jesus, I want to take a look at the road that he was traversing. He was on the road to Jerusalem where he knew that suffering and death awaited him. And Jesus is calling all of us to travel that road with Him. Now, you didn't know you were signing up for that, did you? His road of suffering will lead to our forgiveness and our redemption, but we ourselves will experience a road of suffering as well. And that road will ultimately lead to a road of resurrection. Now, one of the reasons we're calling this series The Road is because we're looking at the road that Jesus took to the cross, but after the cross, there was another road that Jesus walked on. It was called the road to Emmaus. And on the road to Emmaus, people encountered the resurrected Jesus. And we're going to be looking at these two roads, the road to death and the road to life. And we're going to see how both of them apply to us and how both of them are the road that God is taking us on. So the first one I want to look at today is the road to Jerusalem, the road of self-giving love. And if you're in Mark 10, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, look at the text with me. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. 
And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days... He will rise. Wow. He laid it out right there. He let them know this is what's coming. And as you'll see as we get into the text, they didn't have a clue. Every time Jesus talked to them about the road he was on and where he was going, they didn't have a clue. Every time he brought up his own death, they didn't have a clue. They're a lot like us. Have you ever found yourself reading the Bible and you look at the Old Testament and you see the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt and God does a bunch of miracles and signs and wonders for them. He opens up the Red Sea and parts it. He he rains down uh, manna from heaven, bread from heaven to feed them. He does miracle after miracle and right after he does a miracle, the people complain against him. And you find yourself reading that and you go, what is up with these people? These people are terrible. God did miracles for them right in front of their eyes, and they continually complained against Him. And then you get into the New Testament, and you look at the disciples. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, and they're kind of experiencing ambition with one another, and Jesus is doing a miracle in front of them, and a little bit later, they're complaining about something. And you just look at them, and you think, these guys are dense. These guys are slow. What is their problem? And I'll tell you, you start to see the Scripture a little bit different when you're reading the Bible, and you see those kinds of things, and all of a sudden, you realize, oh... They are me. Any of you ever been there? They are me. It's really easy to stand back and go, those guys were clueless. Until you recognize in your own life, when you walk through a season where God has done something wonderful for you, and within a week or two, or maybe a day or two, you're complaining about your lot in life. God's just done a miracle, and yet a week later, you're like, where are you, God? Have you abandoned me? Don't you love me anymore? And we begin to find out we are them. And that's the reality of the human experience. That's the reality of the human condition. Right? It's, it's, you know, when Jesus spoke about us judging one another, the main idea he was trying to get across to us is be very careful how you view another and how you look at another because you're just like that person. And if you just had the wrong or the right set of circumstances, you'll probably do the same kinds of things they do. And that's what I find whenever I read the Scripture. I want you to notice the first thing it says is that Jesus was on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was set with determination to go and die. You know, Jesus' death on the cross wasn't kind of, you know, a surprise. It wasn't a murder. It wasn't even a martyrdom. I mean, it was all those things. He was murdered, and he was a martyr. But Jesus was so much more than a martyr, and and, and so much more happened than just the idea that he was murdered by an unjust trial and unjust people. He knew this was the plan of his father, and his face was set toward it. He was actually determined to go and die. I want you to think about that. What was driving him? What was motivating him? Well, firstly, we know that he wanted to be obedient to his father. He wanted to please his father. But secondly, he loved us. He loves us. He wanted to suffer that he might gain a people. 
He was able to look beyond the agony of the cross and see the glory of a resurrection and see on the other side of that resurrection a people redeemed for him called his body and his bride. And there's a lot to be seen in that. Think about your own life. A lot of times you're in the agony and the struggle of your current condition. Your present sufferings absolutely captivate you and you forget that God's wanting to do something in you at this moment. And if you'll step back and say, okay, Lord, this sucks, I admit it, but I need to know what are you up to in my heart? What are you up to in my life? How do you want to get glory out of this? How do you want me to learn how to fight, how to battle? How do you want me to learn how to yield, how to give? up what is it you're trying to show me in the midst of this because lord i know on the other side of this suffering and this death i'm experiencing experiencing there's life there's something beyond this there's something you have for me on the other side of death and it's called resurrection it's really important that we see that jesus look as you read the bible and you think about your lord as you think about your savior I want you to remember this. He's not just the one who went before us and did these things for us. He's the one who is our pattern. He's the one who is our model. So as we look at Jesus, we should actually be asking ourselves the question, what is it about your life here in the text of Scripture that I can learn from that I might live as you live? Does that make sense? Okay. Some of you are like, no way, man, he was perfect and I'm not. No, you, you need to quit using that excuse and start asking the Holy Spirit, show me how to live like you, Jesus. All right, just saying. So Jesus was on the road up to Jerusalem. He was set with determination to go and die. Jerusalem, as a city, as you read the Bible, you see it represents all the hopes and dreams of the people of Israel. It was the place of the king, the place of the Messiah. It was the city where all the prophecies of the Bible and all the promises of the Bible happened. It was also a place of great suffering, of judgment, and of dashed hopes. If you read the Bible, one of the things you see about Jerusalem is this contrast, this contrast of a place that was the city of the great king and a place that was literally destroyed and razed all the way to the ground to where not one stone was left upon another. It represented a place of great life and hopes and dreams and a, great, a place of great death. And the people were waiting. They'd been waiting for hundreds and hundreds of years. They'd been waiting for thousands of years. What were they waiting for? A Messiah, a conqueror, a king who would once again put Jerusalem as the head of the nations. One who would come along and rescue them from the oppression of Rome and the evil of their time. They were a people looking for a king who would conquer the political system, the religious system, the systems around them that were arrayed against the little guy. They were looking for this Messiah to come and beat it all. And the Messiah came and they missed him. They couldn't see him. They didn't recognize him. They weren't looking for a Messiah that would suffer. They weren't looking for a Messiah that would be crucified. Jesus' focus wasn't on jumping on a white horse and riding into town with an army and kicking butt and taking names later. Jesus was focused on going to a cross and dying. His love for his Father and his love for us was compelling him forward to the cross and to death. I don't, I don't know if you've ever experienced that in your life. I, I've had a few times in my life, maybe you'll relate, I've had a few times in my life where I had a very difficult decision in front of me, really hard. Like, you know, the kind where you're afraid, 
The kind where you know if I walk through that door, if I go and meet with that person, if I have that meeting, if I go and do what I really, you know it's the right thing to do and you have to do it and you know it's, it's potentially got suffering and you're avoiding it and you're pushing against it and you're struggling with it, but there's something deeper, there's something better inside of you and it's this compelling truth, this compelling love inside of you. I have to do the right thing. Even if it kills me, even if it hurts, that's Jesus. I have to do my Father's will, even if it kills me, and I know it will. Imagine that. You ever been there? You ever had to walk through that door, make that phone call, knock on that door, right? Go to that person that you don't want to go to. Have you ever had to do it? Well, if you haven't, you will. It's part of the way of the cross. It's part of the way of Jesus. Is that making sense? And it says the disciples were amazed and afraid. Jesus had just been teaching, and he taught some of the most profound truths in the Bible, radical things like covenant marriage. Once you're married to that person, you, in everything in your own power that you can do, you stay married to them, right? He just taught them this, and he taught them about the value of children. Children came, and God on his lap, and he's blessing them, and the disciples are rebuking him. Get those kids out of here, and Jesus stops them and says, don't you stop the little children from coming to me, for the kids are like the kingdom of heaven, and then he took them up in his lap, and he blessed them, and so the, the, the disciples are getting hit on every side, and the people around are getting hit on every side by this master, this teacher, who is reorienting them, giving them an entire new paradigm of looking at the world, and they're being rocked by him. And he just taught them the need to give up everything and follow him. And so they're they're seeing this, and he's now determined. He's stern. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He knew he was going to die. He'd set his face. The text said they were amazed and they were afraid. What was on his face? What did he look like that caused the people that knew him best to be afraid and amazed at the same time? Well, he was going to die. He had set his face to complete his mission. The word picture in New Testament says this, the Lord walked in advance of the twelve with a solemnity and a determination which foreboded danger. They began to fear coming disaster as they neared Jerusalem. They had read correctly the face of Jesus. You ever been around somebody who's really determined? You ever been around somebody who's, they're going to do something. They have set their face and you watch it. And there's an awe about it. Well, they were in awe. The Son of God was going to go die, and they didn't get it. They were clueless. And then Jesus declares something, and this is the third time he does this. He declares he's going to suffer and die. He described the way of his self-giving love. These words of Jesus would have sounded foreign to the disciples who were looking for his physical kingdom, and, and, and now he's talking about dying. Again, this was the third time he had told them he was going to die and rise again. They didn't know how to deal with these words. Suffering and death were not a part of their agenda. Let me remind you of the disciples, and you'll see later, right after this, they have an argument about James and John ask if they can sit at Jesus' right hand in his kingdom, and they don't mean heaven. So, so now think about, think about this. Jesus just said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to, I'm going to be delivered up. I'm going to die, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And I mean, within just a few minutes, the disciples, James and John, go, Hey, Jesus, uh, when you come into your kingdom, like in the throne in Jerusalem, can I sit at your right hand and my bro sit at your left? 
Can you imagine Jesus? Oy vey! What is going on here? They're just like us, you know? The Lord takes us on a journey. We go on a road. Maybe that road has some suffering in it. Maybe for the sake of you standing for righteousness and doing the right thing and, 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 and fulfilling the mission God's called you to. Maybe, maybe it's, it's going right. Just, maybe all it is is going to your neighbor. Maybe it's just going to that job and, and not compromising. The boss is telling you to do something that's unrighteous and unethical or your coworkers are and you're, you have that pressure coming on you and you know in your conscience, I can't do that. And you step through it and you do the right thing and you think, Because I do the right thing, God's going to back me and everything's going to be okay. I don't know where you got that. I don't know what Bible you read because that's not in the Scripture. Sometimes that happens and sometimes what happens is you lose your job. Sometimes what happens is you suffer and you're on this road and suffering wasn't in your agenda. You saw promotion. You saw blessing. You got married to this person and you were head over heels in love with each other and everything was going great and you started walking down this road and after the honeymoon was over and after the glory kind of wore off and after the sex was no longer good, you started noticing you wanted to scratch their eyeballs out and all of a sudden the suffering road is in front of you. And you're facing the reality of a cross. You're facing the reality of difficulty. And you're looking for a way out. You ever been there? Anybody in this room besides me ever been there? Come on, talk to me. It's true, isn't it? And so you're on this road and all of a sudden Jesus says, hey, there's some death and suffering coming. You're going to go through a really hard time. And you're like, wait a minute. Um, Look, I have my five-year plan, Jesus. And that's not in it. I just am expecting glory and victory all the way. And he's like, good luck with that. There ain't no resurrection without some dying. Right? See, there in verse 33 and 34, you know, he, he tells them, the Son of Man's going to be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to condemn him to death. They're going to deliver him over to the Gentiles. He gets very specific. They're going to mock him. They're going to spit on him. They're going to flog him. They're going to kill him. And then he's going to rise again. And the disciples, they don't even know what to say. Uh, There's Jesus. He's being really dark again. Can you imagine? This is the third time he said this. He's been really talking about this a lot, guys. Is Jesus kind of depressed? What's going on with him? I mean, this dude raises dead people. He walks on water. He causes wind and waves to cease. What the heck is going on with him? Why is he so dark? Why is he so depressing? Dude's negative. Some of us that are from a faith background... Um, and love the scripture, we believe in positive confession, and we, we believe in always saying the right stuff. Man, you read, some of, you read the Bible sometimes, you look at Jesus, you're like, whoa, Jesus. Well, he confessed it, that's why he got crucified. Yeah, right. Look at the other two times, I just want you to see them. Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside. Oh, how many of us are like Peter. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That's profound. What? First of all, I love Peter, but Peter's the only dude I know in the Bible that Jesus called the devil. 
How, how would you like that marker? Can't you see the other disciples? You know they razzed each other later. Hey, Peter, Satan. <laughs> right? Hey, dude, Jesus called you the devil, man. Imagine that. Now, why did Jesus rebuke him? Because Jesus understood that any voice that would try to deter him from the mission of the Father was the voice of the devil. Even though the devil didn't really understand what was going on with the crucifixion, he knew that any voice that would try to get him to not obey his Father was the work of the enemy. And then look at Mark chapter 9, verses 31 and 32. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. See, I I take great comfort in these texts because they remind me of me. I don't know what you're doing, Lord. I don't get your ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says to his people, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So that takes me to this whole idea of Jesus dying, what He pronounced He would do. His death on the cross is confusing to us, but it is the higher ways and the higher thoughts of God. It goes against everything. Look, come up with a religion. I dare you. Just sit down sometime and come up with a religion. Okay, let's, let's just, you know, let's assume you believe in God and there's a God out there somewhere and, you know, we're, we're humans and we got this problem down here. And you, you determine what that problem is and you determine uh, how to fix it. And most of the ancient mythologies, most paganism ultimately has the story of, you know, a conquering God who's going to come and he's going to, you know, win the day by, by battling, right? He's going to win the day by taking care of evil. And nobody would have conceived of the God who won the day by dying willingly on a cross and choosing because He loved to die. In fact, most of the ancient gods weren't gods of love at all. They were gods of vengeance, gods that were capricious, changed their mind, they were moody, they were very human-like. Our God said, you know, the only way to remedy the evil of the human heart, the only way to remedy the selfishness of the human heart is to die. It's the only way to do it. The only way to fix the problem is I got to become one of them and I got to die. See, the idea of the Son of God and the Messiah dying on a Roman cross was abhorrent to Jews and total foolishness to the Roman world. God wouldn't intervene in human affairs by offering Himself to the most painful and torturous form of death known at that time, would He? No. What kind of madness is this? Nobody at that time, religious or secular, had a Messiah dying to atone for sin. The Jews studied the Scripture night and day, and all through the Bible there were allusions to a suffering Messiah. Isaiah 53 uh, describes in detail the death of Jesus 700 years before He dies, and yet when He came on the scene, nobody got it. Nobody saw it. It was mystery. Many times we make plans for God in our lives. We, we believe we know what's right for our lives. We try to manipulate God into working out our agenda. Have you ever noticed that? 
A lot of times we say we believe in God and that He is our Lord and our King, but what we really mean is that we want a God who will serve us, a God who will move right now when we pray and we tell Him what to do. We, we actually many times act as though we're God and He's the servant. He's the child, and he's the one that should obey our commands. And when he doesn't come through for us, when he doesn't do what we want him to do, we're like Peter. We take him aside, and we rebuke him. We're like, who do you think you are telling me how to live? What do you think you are, God or something? It's true. It's the way many of us approach God. We wouldn't think of it that way, but but really step back from your life and ask yourself the question, is he Lord? That means master. If he says to you, I want you to do something, and it's going to be really painful, but it's going to be the greatest glory you've ever experienced in your life, most of us will go, "Mm, I'll take the glory, but I don't want the pain. Amen? God doesn't deal with the outward forms like religious systems and secular governments without first dealing with the most corrupt root and center of it all, the human heart. I read this story, and it's a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about. Leighton Ford was preaching a sermon, and, and, and before I, I share this, this story, um, you've got to have a little background. You have to know that in Islam, in the Muslim religion, uh, Jesus is highly esteemed. In fact, Jesus is, is loved, and Jesus is seen as one who will come again. I, I bet you didn't know that. He's seen as one of the greatest prophets, and uh, Muslims really, they look at Jesus like, Wow, we, we respect him and we honor him, but they don't believe Jesus was God in the flesh. They don't believe he died on the cross for our sins, and they don't believe he rose bodily from the dead. So, Leighton Ford shares the story of Joe Cumming, a fellow of the faith and culture center at Yale, who has a special interest in respectful Christian witness to Muslims. Listen to this story. Among those, he's lived among Muslims for many years. He had the opportunity to meet with the Lebanese Ayatollah, one of the most influential Muslim clerics in the Arab world. It was the day before the holiest day of the year for Shiite Muslims. So it was like asking for an audience with the Pope on Christmas Eve. The Sheikh's secretary said Joe could only have five minutes. And he said, at four minutes and 55 seconds, you should be standing to leave. As Joe prayed hard about what he could say, he saw a banner across the road that read in Arabic, the victory of blood over the sword. This meant that when the enemies of Muhammad's grandson, Hussein, came to kill him, he could have called on God to kill them. Instead, he laid down his sword and was massacred, becoming a sign of forgiving the sins of others. So when the Ayatollah asked Joe what he had to say, Joe said this, Doesn't that banner mean that Hussein won a greater victory by laying down his life? Yes, said the sheik. That's what it means. That's what I believe about Jesus, said Joe Cumming. He could have killed his enemies, but instead he laid down his life for them in love and he prayed for their forgiveness. I believe that is the key to break the cycle of violence and revenge in the world. The Ayatollah turned to his followers and said, I totally agree with every word this Christian man of God has just said. Joe stood to leave. His five minutes were up. Where are you going? Asked the sheik. There's more I want to talk to you about. He kept Joe for two hours. At one point, the Ayatollah brought up the death of two little boys on the West Bank, killed by a misfired missile as they played soccer. What do you have to say about this as a Christian, he asked. 
Joe replied, I look at the suffering of all the innocent victims through the lens of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. I might wonder at times if God has abandoned the human race, but in the suffering of Jesus Christ, I see the sign of God's solidarity with all innocent victims of violence and suffering. The sheik again turned to his followers and said, I agree with every word this Christian man of God has just said. What a powerful thing to be able to say in light of the the cross. If Christ be for us, who can be against us? See, even that she could recognize there's something, even though it's out of the norm, even though it goes against what culture, society, and warmongering nations say, right, let's take up the sword and conquer our enemies. God says, lay down the sword and give your life away. And when Jesus gave his life away, he did the most profound thing in history, and he broke the pattern, and he turned everything upside down again, or I should say, right side up. The power of the cross, the message of the cross is so amazing. Every stage of Jesus' suffering and death shows us our own guilt and our own need for a Savior. Think about it. The power and the corruption of man-made religion. He says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they'll condemn him to death. Man-made religion has always had an element of power and corruption. The system of Jesus' day had convoluted true faith in God and had become a system that kept people away from God. Religion is always tainted with the sin of the human heart and the love of power and control. And guess who crucified Jesus? Corrupt religion. The religion that was the true religion at that time, supposed to be the religion in the world. Look at us. Let's think about us for a minute. What do we really believe? What do we really believe about Jesus? What do we really embrace about the gospel? Right? Man-made religion is when we take religion and we use it for the purpose of controlling other people, right? That can't be God, right? My, my goal up here in preaching is not to manipulate you to try to get you to do something I want you to do. If I ever do that, may Lord, the Lord knock me out of the pulpit and get me out of ministry right away. I want to point you to Jesus, your master, and say, he's worth it all. He's worthy of it all. Follow him. Love him. Don't follow a man. I mean, you have to follow a man to some degree. Follow me as I follow Christ, Paul said. But only as we follow Christ. Keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, and then people won't let you down. I mean, they'll let you down, but you'll get over it quick. You won't let it ruin your faith and wreck your life. Man-made religion sent Jesus to the cross. How about the power and corruption of governments and all people? I'll deliver him over to the Gentiles and they'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Man-made religion delivered Jesus up to a a corrupt Roman government and the mob. Corrupt religion, corrupt governments, and all the common people from the many nations within Rome who were in Jerusalem crucified Jesus. I I love it. It's a It's an equal opportunity crucifixion. We're all culpable. We all bear guilt for the crucifixion of Jesus. If we'd been in Jerusalem, don't don't deceive yourself. If you'd been in Jerusalem, you would have probably been either like the disciples denying him, or you would have been like the mob yelling, crucify him. We would have been caught up in the moment, caught up in the scene. Or if you worked for the government, You'd have been carrying it out, or if you worked for the religious system, like me, you would have probably been calling for his crucifixion. There were a few few exceptions, but that's the reality of who we are, right? We need a Savior. How many of you recognize you need a Savior? 
right? You really believe it? You sure? You sure you don't see following Jesus as just, you know, kind of another way to add some good stuff to your life because you're actually a pretty good person? You ever find yourself saying that to people? I'm a pretty good person. I pay my taxes. I haven't killed anybody. I'm not a serial murderer. You ever say that kind of stuff? Let's just get honest. Let's get real. Let's get right down to the nitty-gritty. We're not real good people. Apart from the gospel, I mean, the gospel changes the human heart. But before the gospel comes and changes the human heart, every one of us, even those of us who pay our taxes, are in desperate need of a Savior. And I know that's true because I'll tell you what, Jesus wouldn't have died on a cross if every one of us didn't need it. Amen. I'm finishing up. Are you still with me? And the last point is all the corruption of evil, all the corruption and evil in the world can't overcome the life of God. And I got to end there. Jesus just says these few little words, and after three days, he will rise. It's interesting he's talking about himself in third person, right? And after three days, he will rise. (laughs) All the evil of the human heart, all the corrupt religious systems, all the political systems of our time and of his time cannot keep the powerful love of God from triumphing over human evil and sin. Jesus gave himself up to die for us because he loves us. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus never sinned. His death was truly unjust. Death had no right to hold him. Death had no right to keep him. The resurrection was inevitable. Sin, evil, and death cannot win in the end. The resurrection is written within creation. Death cannot triumph over life, and evil cannot beat the ultimate goodness of God. Why is that so important? Because some of you are sitting here, and you're sitting in the reality of death. I know people in this room that have lost loved ones in the last year and have gone through terrible tragedies. And if the story ended there, what what do you have to live for? Right? But the story doesn't end there. This story isn't done being written. Death doesn't win. That's the story of the whole Bible. The story, they fell, they died in the garden when they ate the fruit, but at the end there's a garden again and it's more beautiful and they're eating fruit from trees and and the trees heal the nations and they're with the lamb and they're with the king for eternity and there's a new heavens and a new earth and there's no more tears and there's no more sorrow and there's no more war and there's no more death. That is the final story. And sometimes we lose sight of that. We live in this temporal little world. We're trying to be like the disciples and keep Jesus from dying, keep any suffering from happening. We just want a good idyllic little utopian world. And it doesn't happen. It unravels. You just start to finally get your life in order, right? You get that retirement account set up and things happen. The economy collapses and all your 401k goes out the window, down the toilet. See, that's the reality of life down here. And people die and tragedy happens. And we're like, I didn't expect this. What planet are you living on? Turn on the news. It happens every moment of every day. Sin is real. Death is real. Evil is real. But there's one who's conquered. And he will. And he did rise again. And so will you. And so will your loved ones. And so will every dream and hope that was from God that seems like it went in the ground and it stayed there. It's all going to come back to life. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you, says the Lord. If God be for us, who can be against us? Come on, somebody. That's the reality. The road to the cross ultimately leads to the road from a tomb. The road to death must give way to the road to life. That is reality. 
That's the final word. God wins. Amen.